All right, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 37, Genesis chapter 37. What we'll find here in this text is that God is faithful and that He has ordained trials and hardships and glories, and we have the privilege of walking with our faithful God through all of those mountains and valleys and areas that are in between, times of sunshine and and times of darkness, times of difficulty, times of victory. And we find that God is sovereign in it all. God is faithful in it all. And so let us open Genesis chapter 37 and look upon the life of Joseph and then ultimately the life of Joseph and his brothers. Genesis chapter 37. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he had made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose, also stood upright, and indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to them, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into the pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. 
And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And the grand adventure begins. This message will involve a fair bit of reading. This is the narrative account. It's the history, the story of Jacob's sons, and specifically, pointedly, Joseph. And so Joseph is 17 years old. Joseph is a young man. But don't picture a 17-year-old in our world. At 17 in this world... He's a man. He's not a punk. He's not in the basement. He's not playing video games. He's not idling away his life. He's a man doing a man's work, reporting to his father as a man. Now, commentators, as per normal, are all over the map. Some judge him more harshly. Some stand by him. And I'm leaning toward standing by him. I'll at least give some play to the idea that he is a bit foolish in his youth, but I lean toward him being an upright young man, beloved of his father, who loved the Lord and loved his brothers and was simply trying to do the will of God in the circumstances he was delivered. If there is error here, and I believe there is clear error, the error is on his father's part and on his brother's part. But I'm not quick to see Joseph in error or to judge him here. It's possible that he was foolhardy in telling his brothers his dreams. It's possible that he was foolhardy in going back to report to his father. So I'll lend that possibility. But let's look at the text, and I'll tell you what I believe is far more likely based upon the overwhelming testimony of Joseph's life. So Joseph is 17 years old. He's doing a man's work, and here he is out with his brothers, and he reports back to his father. But there's a few more details here. Israel, verse 3, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Now, there's a little more to it than that. He's the son of Rachel and the son of his old age. Remember, it took Rachel some time to conceive. And so this son is the son of his beloved wife, Rachel. Rachel, who is now deceased, and this son is favored above all the rest, perhaps even more so than Benjamin, because Benjamin was born when what happened? When Rachel died. Benjamin is actually the youngest son, but he is not the favored son. It would seem that the favor fell upon Joseph because his birth did not cause the death of the beloved wife of Jacob, now Israel. And so he is favored. And favoring a child in this manner is a good way to make this child despised by his siblings, specifically his elder brothers, to favor a younger brother and to set him up in some position of authority over his elder brothers is a good way to cause that brother to be despised and hated. And that's what I think we see here. I don't think we see a tattletale coming home to dad to say, hey, those brothers of mine, 
They're not tending the flocks responsibly. They're not doing your bidding, Father. I think he's out there by his Father's bidding, and I think he's out there as a responsible and usually responsible young man, but fully man, who sees what ought to be done and it isn't being done, and his father has already tasked him previously in a role of supervisor, and so he comes home fulfilling that role and reporting to his father. And what lends me to think that and what should lend you to think that is that his father immediately tasks him to go find his brothers and to report back again. So this seems to be the pattern of the family and the pattern of, if you will, the, the small business, this, this farming family carrying out this business, if you will, this family business of tending to the herds, shepherding. And so Joseph was beloved of all the children, more so, or loved, excuse me, verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. So it's one thing to clearly favor him. It's another to make this, this brightly colored coat for him to wear as the clearly favored son. And so everywhere he goes... All day long, his brothers look upon him and see this symbol of their father's favor upon him. Not a good idea. As parents, uh, we need to be wise and love all of our children. And even if there is one child in the family, one daughter, one son, that is particularly loving and thus particularly lovable or particularly righteous and and responsible, thus easy to get along with as a parent, right? You're not having to discipline this child, but that other child, you know, that's the naughty one, right? Or there's other five or there's other 11. Those are the naughty ones. This is the good son. So he's easy to favor. Nevertheless, you need to guard him from that lest it be a detriment to him and a stumbling block to the others. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers through this clear symbol, this tunic of many colors, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. One of the Ten Commandments is you shall not covet. And one of the very real effects of the sin of covetousness is to hate people because they have something you don't have. They have something you wish you had. Whether it's a position, whether it's a job, whether it's wealth, whether it's honor, whether it's a beautiful wife, a handsome husband, a hardworking husband, a husband that comes home at night, whatever it might be, a truck, you can't like them because they've got the truck you like. We are pretty petty in our sin sometimes. We can't like them because they're better at us than the sport we enjoy. They went to a better school than we went to, whatever it might be. Covetousness is an ugly sin, and it makes us behave in an ugly way. Envy, covetousness, same sin, or at least very closely related sins. And so they hate him, and they cannot speak peaceably to him. When people are covetous, when they're envious of others, they they can't be nice. And if they are nice, they're, they're... they're covering, it's a false niceness. It's not a, a true kindness. There's no love there. Covetousness kills love. What does love do to covetousness? Love kills covetousness. Why? Because I'm glad you have a nicer truck than I, I do. I'm glad you have a, a bigger, nicer house than I do. It's not a contest, and I'm happy for you to enjoy that. I'm glad you got to go on a vacation I didn't get to go on. And I don't think of everything in those terms, that you have this and I don't. You got to do that. I didn't. You're popular. I'm not. No, I'm just glad that God has blessed you with that and you get to enjoy that. And it's not a constant contest because it's not about self-love, love of me. And so all day long, every day, I go, I go through life if I'm full of self-love And I'm just offended all the time because, look, he has this and she has that and they got to do this and they got to go there. And why can't I get a break? That's what covetousness does. That's why it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's a neglected commandment in the Ten Commandments. Well, yeah, covetousness. Well, what's the big deal with that? Oh, it's a big deal. 
Because when you love God and you love people, you are not covetous. But when you're full of self-love, you, you can't then be actively loving God and you can't then be actively loving people. And it leads to things like covetousness that then make you treat them poorly. And you'll say things like, you know, I bet he's got that car, that house or that truck, and he's just way over his head in debt. And, you know, it's irresponsible to spend that kind of money on that kind of earthly thing. You know, you'll sanctify with good Christian gossip, right? You'll say something like, you know, going on vacation like that, you know, that, that's kind of wasteful, the Lord's resources. Well, that's ugly. That's ugly. You don't know what resources they have. You, you don't know how God has blessed them. And you don't know how you would use those same resources if you had them, right? And we as Americans, we are, we are phenomenally wealthy, all of us, all of us. Our homeless have weight issues. Our homeless need a gym membership, right? We are phenomenally wealthy. And so let's be thankful for our relative wealth. Let's be thankful for the relative blessings that God has bestowed upon us and not be jealous or envious of others, whether they be in our immediate family or our church family or just in a human family, others will have opportunities you didn't have, right? They'll be born in a place and in a home, you know, that you weren't born in and, and they'll have opportunities. Most of the world, because we're Americans, are not born in a place with greater opportunities than we have. And so just on that foundation, right, you should wake up every day and, and praise God that you were born in America, And if you weren't born in America, now you're here in America, you should wake up and praise God, you're here in America, the land of opportunity that the world is literally dying right now to get to, to break into unlawfully. Because there's opportunity here, there's freedom here, there's relative safety and security here. And and so we should not be envious. We should be a people full of love for God and love for neighbor. And that would have protected his brothers, right? So dad is blowing it. Dad is favoring Joseph. You know, you know, dad, um, he loved Rachel in a special way. And, and we, we've all, you know, through the years, we've figured out what happened with Leah. And so we get that. And, but we love dad and we love Joseph. And we're going to put up with this favoritism and press on through it. And, uh, you know, we're not going to give Joseph anything bad to report back to dad in this supervisory role that dad has bestowed upon him. We're going to work hard and be diligent and be good sons. And perhaps dad will give us a fancy coat too, right? That's the way to go about it. But when you're full of self-love, which is a door to every kind of sin, then you're envious and hateful and you can't speak peaceably. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. And then he presses in, please hear this dream. Now that's why I say that doesn't seem particularly wise. (laughs) It doesn't. But if you had a dream that you knew was from God and you were pure of heart, you weren't full of pride, by the grace of God, you were a man who walked with the Lord even at 17 years of age in faith and in righteousness, and you simply in all that you did were trying to glorify and honor God and to obey Him, and God gave you this dream, you knew it was from God, it would be reasonable to share it and to say, the Lord, our God, has given me this dream. I don't know know, what's going to happen, but this is the dream. And he shares that dream. And they are offended. And we understand that. And so they say, shall you indeed reign over us? Verse 8. Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So they hate him all the more. Their hatred, their envy, their covetousness only increases. But now, again, how should they have responded? They should have said, well, if this is of God, so be it. So be it. God's will be done. Who who is their father, by the way? Their father is Jacob. Jacob is the second-born son, Esau and Jacob. And the Lord elevated Jacob over Esau. And so even in their own family history, they should be able to reflect on the fact that God's ways are not the normal ways of this world. 
and they should humble themselves beneath God. And so, verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to him. As if it wasn't bad enough with the first dream. Uh, you're all going to bow down to me, brothers. Now, mom, dad, and all of you are going to bow down to me, and my star shines brighter than all the rest. And it sounds boastful, but I really don't see that in the text, Right? If we read it from a suspicious point of view, if we read it from a judgmental point of view, then, then yes, it seems boastful. But once again, I don't see that that's Joseph's character. I don't, not at all. And again, when you consider God's providence, God knew that he shared that dream with them. God knew that's how they responded. Then God did what? He gave them an even clearer dream, an even higher dream, if you will. I'm going to elevate you even higher, not just above your brothers, but above your father and mother, and he shares this dream. Now, let me go a step further as far as revelation goes. Generally speaking, when God gives revelation, the revelation is to be revealed. Thus the term, revelation. And so I can't fault him as many commentators do. And the reason I defend him, again, is because I don't see that in Joseph's life. I don't see that in the text. And because What I do see in Joseph's life is a parallel with the Christian life. We are children of God. We are highly favored. We have been promised eternal blessings that are unimaginable. We have the brightly colored coat of Christ's own righteousness. We have the Word of God, the entire revelation. And we are to go to the world and say, thus saith the Lord. And minister God's law to expose sin, that they might come to repentance and be led unto Jesus Christ to be justified by faith to the one name under heaven given among men, which they must be saved. Which in this current world, in this current America, is considered boastful and proud and arrogant. And I now, when I go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ publicly, there are some in the crowd that are just saying, that's just arrogant. That's just proud to uplift Christianity, to uplift Jesus, to uplift the Bible up over every other Savior, over every other God, over every Scripture or so-called Scripture. That's just arrogant. Where is your humility? And see, that's a humility we cannot afford. Oh, yes, be humble in self. And I don't see Joseph ultimately elevating himself. I see God elevating Joseph. And Joseph simply living out his life, following and obeying God and revealing the revelation that God gave to him. God nowhere here rebukes him. God nowhere here corrects him for revealing the revelation that causes everyone else to hate him. Well, the parallels between Joseph's life and our lives as Christians are immense. They are vast. We are highly favored. We have the code of Christ's own righteousness upon us. We have a certain eternal inheritance. What do we get? Everything. Everything. And the Bible says we will rule and reign with Christ. Jesus himself, the Son of God, calls us brother and sister. God, the Father, calls us his children. And he says that he personally will wipe away every tear. Like a daddy does now for his little children. And this world will hate you when you declare God's revelation. When you say, look, get on board with this. Outside of this plan, there is only certain eternal destruction. But as you come and bend your knee to Christ, you too can be saved. But you've got to give up your fool's gold. You've got to give up your rebellion. You've got to give up your Levi's jacket and your leather kiss jacket with that big tongue on the back. You've got to give all that up and bend your knee to Christ. You've got to give up your 
Roman Catholic robes of antichrist faux righteousness. You've got to give up your Muslim robes of false prophet Muhammad righteousness and bend your knee to the one true God at the foot of the cross, coming empty-handed, looking to Christ and Christ alone and trusting in his perfect righteousness to become your righteousness as your sin is placed upon him and he pays that debt in full. Oh, friends, repent, turn to Christ, and live. That's our message, and the world hates it. They hate it, and they hate our certitude. They hate our certitude. In a world of relativity, they hate revelation. See, we we have an epistemological foundation for truth, for absolute truth, the revelation of God's Word. That is the foundation of all truth. And without it, there's no truth. Without it, as you're seeing in our current culture, we, we don't know anything anymore. So-called scientists, they can't hold anything anymore. So-called politicians, they can't even say dogmatically what the definition of a woman is. Scientists are holding loosely their Big Bang cosmology and their theory of evolution and saying, ah, aliens? I don't know. And so let us hold fast to the revelation of God and proclaim it, knowing that until God renews the mind, until God regenerates the heart and renews the mind, the world will only hate us all the more. The more revelation we give them, the more they will hate us until they're born again. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But think about it. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. That's an affront to every American. Every American, the vast majority of which worship themselves as their God, decide for themselves good and evil as their own God. And therefore, you shall have no other gods before me is an affront to them. You should not make any graven images nor bow down to them. They bow down to the man and woman in the mirror. And a small percentage of Americans bow down to statues of Buddha or Shiva or Krishna where they bow down and face Mecca and worship the false god of Islam, where they bow down before the wafer and worship the wafer and then eat it for justification, where they bow down before the brother of Lucifer over at the Mormon temple, that, that, that great stone statue of Jesus, hoping to get another burning in their bosom, but it's going to lead to the burning of their soul. And we've got to go and say, you shall have no graven images. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. And if you do, God's law says you hate the true God and you'll perish in your sin. You must repent of your idolatry. Because Revelation 21.8 is clear that all idolaters will abide under the wrath of God in the lake of fire. And they're not going to like us for that message. (laughs) They're going to say, who gives you the right? How arrogant of you, you 17-year-old, you 15-year-old, you 75-year-old, you 37-year-old. How arrogant of you to say, thus saith the Lord. But it's not arrogance. It's obedience and faith. And so the brothers envied him, and they hated him. Verse 11, but his father kept the matter in mind. Verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said, here I am. See, that's what I see. Those are the kind of indicators of Joseph's character that I see. Dad says, hey, go. And he's sending them off on a journey. I mean, this is miles and miles and miles away. And there are no taxis. There's no Ubers. Uh, he doesn't have the, you know, the family truck to jump in, turn the key. This is an adventure. And a risky one at that. Going alone to check on his brothers far, far away to Shechem. And he says, here I am. Here I am. And I think that's indicative of his character in his relationship with his father all his life. Here I am. What do you want, Dad? Here I am. Okay, here I go. And off he goes. 
Verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it's well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? This is not happenstance. This is providence of God. God sent him this man that he might direct him to find his brothers. Verse 16, he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they're feeding the flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So They weren't in Shechem. They had gone all the way to Dothan. This is like 15 miles north of Shechem, which was always quite already quite a ways from Hebron, where his father was. And you'll recall that Shechem is where the Dinah incident took place. His father's probably concerned they might be back there causing trouble or in trouble. And so he sends Joseph after them and now he's going all the way to Dothan. They see him afar off even before he comes near and they conspire to kill him. Covetousness and envy are dangerous. They are forms of hatred and they quickly graduate to the highest form of hatred, murder. We're going to murder him. This is our brother, our father's son. We're going to murder him. And beware that the reality is, if there is no law, if there is no law enforcement, then the only thing holding back the greatest of evils is the whim of men's hearts. And the whim of their heart on this day was, let's murder our brother. And they're out in the wilderness, and who's to stop them? No one. Joseph can't pull out his cell phone and call 911. But Joseph's out there all alone, and Joseph's at the mercy of his brothers. And I would say, in the much bigger picture, the mercy of God. And so let's kill him. Let's cast him into the pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. And we shall see what becomes of his dreams. So their murder, their murderous plot is directly connected to their envy. Verse 21, but Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Again, to draw the parallel between Joseph and Christians today, the world is saying, let's kill them. Let's cancel them. Let's shut them down. I've been told multiple times that I I would kill you or I should kill you. And not just by Muslims, by average atheists, by men and women who love the slaughter of the unborn, by men and women who love their sexual immorality, uh, by a man who loved his witchcraft, this warlock, said, I should kill you now as I'm graciously calling him to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that he might be saved and assuring him that if he has tapped into any power, it's the power of the devil. But the devil will abide in hell with you unless you repent. And this fellow Marine, shocker, I was shocked. How did a warlock get into the Marine Corps? Yeah, that should be one of the questions they ask. Have you used drugs? Are you a warlock? Anyway, he says, I should kill you now. And I said to him, do you see, you know, I'm here pleading for your life and for your soul lovingly, and your response is, I should kill you now. Do you see whom you're serving and where it's taking you? You want to murder me, a fellow human being and a fellow Marine. And what stops these people, whether it be their love of their sexual sin or their love or their murder of the unborn or their love of their witchcraft. And I'm, I'm exposing them to the law of God and to the one true God. And they don't want to be accountable before the God they know and the God they hate because they love their sin. So they hate me and want to murder me. We had a, a man in a big truck at the abortion clinic throw the truck in reverse and peel out trying to run me over on the corner some years ago. And this woman, this 
grandma who walked by every single time we were there with her little dog, this grandma turns. Now, she would look like a sweet woman if you didn't know who she was. This grandma turns and says, run him over with the ugliest face you can imagine on a woman who seconds before looked like a sweet little grandma with a sweet little white dog. And after the man drove away, I turned to her and I said, ma'am, you just revealed your wicked heart. You are a murderer at heart. And because you love the murder of the unborn, you would see me murdered as well for daring to stand up and defend the unborn. May God grant you repentance and salvation. But that's what's in their hearts. It's only their self-love that keeps them from murdering because they don't want to go to prison. But in this world, Joseph's world, there are no police officers, there are no prisons, and nothing is holding his brothers back except the hand of God. And thankfully, God does hold them back through one brother saying, hey, wait, 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 Reuben, who is an unlikely brother. When did we last see Reuben? When did he last come to light? When he was with his father's concubine, rebelling against God, rebelling against his father in a horrific way. And now here he is, and it would seem he has repented of that rebellion and that sin because here he's sincere. He doesn't want to see his father's beloved son murdered. And when he comes back and finds that he's gone, he rips his robe. He's put out. He wasn't there when he was sold. And so he comes back and he finds him gone. And he is truly sorrowful and rips his robe as an expression of that deep sorrow. What does that tell us of Reuben? Well, it tells us that God is gracious and, and that even should a man commit a great sin, he may yet find repentance and be greatly forgiven by a great Savior, and do great things, or at least attempt to, in rescuing his brother. And so the Ishmaelites come, and Joseph's in the pit, and Judah says, let's sell him. Once again, covetousness. Let's sell him. They were envious of their brother, so they wanted to murder him. Reuben's voice of reason stopped them from murder, but Judah is still full of covetousness. Judah's the oldest son, and Judah says, mm, let's sell him. And so they sell him into slavery. The sin of covetousness results in their brother being sold into slavery. And that'll teach him, won't it? Telling us about his dreams we're all going to bow down to him. No, he's going to bow down. He's going to be a slave. Now, throughout the history of the world, the world has persecuted the Jews. The world has hated the Jews. Satan himself, I think, indwelt Hitler, if not Satan, then one of his demons, to inspire such a vicious hatred of the Jewish people. And throughout much of the history of the world... Christians have been despised and hated. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. But even today, genuine Christians around the world, genuinely living out their Christianity, proclaiming the one true God and the one true gospel, are hated and despised, and more so than ever in our lives. I used to say 20 years ago that you know, we're living in the era of Christian Disneyland, where we have more freedom and, and we're, we're nearly applauded for our Christianity. Hey, that's good of you. You're a Christian, but the day will come if we don't continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what I used to say. The day will come when Christianity will fall out of favor, when we will no longer have a biblical worldview dominating our society, and being a Christian won't be a feather in your cap. It won't be an accolade. It will be a detriment. It will be a curse. You will be the off-scouring. You will be the despised. And tragically, I was a prophet, not giving new revelation, but looking to God's revelation and applying it to the world we live in. And today, in our society, being a Christian is to be a bigot, is to be a misogynist, 
is to be narrow-minded, is to be anti-freedom even, anti-freedom, is to be tyrannical even. You're a tyrant over their body. Of course, they want to do things with their body and the body inside their body that God forbids. And so we must stand and fight a good fight. We must stand like Joseph, despite what the rest of the world, even our 11 brothers are doing, and walk with God. Declare God's revelation. Do the right thing in a perverse world. Even should they throw us into a pit. Even should they sell us into slavery. And know, know this, in the end, you have the victory. In the end, you are children of God. And should they take this whole world from you, God is going to give it back. And that is certain. And so they take everything from him. They take his favored status. They take his coat of many colors. They take the entire family and his father's love from him. They take his rights as a human being to live freely. And they sell him into slavery. Then they report back to dad with the multicolored Tunic dipped in blood, goat's blood. They kill a goat, put the goat's blood on the tunic and take it to dad to deceive dad about the murder of dad's favorite son, which is interesting because at the beginning of dad's life, dad took a goat's skin to deceive his father and receive the blessing that was meant for Esau. And so sometimes God's chastening takes time but comes nevertheless. Even for God's children. We're forgiven. We're saved. We're in covenant relationship. Nevertheless, the rod falls because God is a perfect father and he chastens perfectly. And this is a heavy, heavy blow to Jacob's heart. He is weeping. He could not be comforted. And think of the hypocritical comforters that were coming to him. All of his sons who sold Joseph into slavery come to comfort dad. How tragic. He could not be comforted. Verse 36, Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. Oh my. 17 minutes left and so far to go. Well, we'll probably have to come back and review chapter 37 next time and finish up through 41 and we'll deal with chapter 38, which is not much fun today, and finish up with that. There is the unfortunate story of Judah stuck in here in chapter 38 between chapters 37 and the rest of the story of Joseph's life. And it would seem to be in chronological order. They sold Joseph off and, and then this happened. And consider that Judah, Judah's the one who sold him. Judah's the one who said, let's sell him into slavery. And so I think there's a relationship with that as well. And so some time goes on in Judah's life, some time goes on, and, and chapter 38, it came to pass at that time, Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, and Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Verse 5, and she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Shezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. You think this story of Judah might be stuck in here for a reason? Judah was treacherous. Judah sold his brother into slavery. Are things going to go well for Judah? They're not. Now, I do have hope in Judah's life that he yet came to repentance and yet walked with God in faith and that we will one day know him. But when we sin against God and against man, there are ramifications. And his son dies. So he sent his father's beloved son off to slavery. 
and his son dies. His son just doesn't die. His son is wicked, so God kills him. Now, that ought to make Judah think, you know what? I was kind of wicked. Maybe I should repent. I wish we had hours to preach all of this in one sitting. I really do, because it's a long story. And what we're going to see at the end of the story is Judah seems awful repentant, truly. And that God works this entire story out for his glory and to bring these men to repentance and genuine faith and humility. To ultimately build a nation out of them. It is a grand story of God's faithfulness. Again, verse 8, Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother so that his brother would have an heir. Verse 9, but Onan knew that that heir would not be his own and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother and the thing which he did displeased the Lord therefore he killed him also. Two of three sons, dead. Two or three sons, wicked and selfish, dead. God killed them. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown up. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went in and dwelt in her father's house. So he wasn't going to risk his last son. You stay away from Tamar. Don't want you to die. What's that say about this son? He is likely wicked also, and Judah knows it. And so he's going to try to protect him from the judgment of God, but not by doing the right thing. Verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears in Timnah, and he and his friend Hira the Adullamite, and it was told to Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So he said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So Judah, to his mind, is having relations with a prostitute. Tamar seeing that her unrighteous father-in-law was not going to grant her an heir through his son as a husband, carried out this ruse and thus conceived. Verse 20, Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, where is the harlot? was openly by the roadside. And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said to her, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So about three months later, people notice that she's pregnant. And they report it back to Judah. And she allows all this, of course, knowing what's going to happen. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now notice his indignant judgment. So she played the harlot, right? Because she had sex outside of marriage, they're assuming. Of course, her husband's dead, and the man who was to take his place, the second son, he's dead also. And there is a third candidate, but Judah will not give the third candidate lest he die, also being wicked. And therefore, Judah is in no position to be righteously indignant that she has gotten herself pregnant. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. What a judgment. Verse 25, when she was brought out, 
She sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. What do you suppose these are? (laughs) The signet, the cord, and the staff. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Now, more righteous is not righteous. This whole deal is not righteous. It's a mess, an absolute mess. And God is faithful to record our mess. God is not ashamed of our mess because it's our mess. And God's name is not tainted by our mess, praise God. So when someone you think is a stalwart Christian and they create a mess, don't worry that God's great name is going to be tainted. It is not. It was not tainted by David. It was not tainted by Judah. It was not tainted by any of the patriarchs of old. It was not tainted by Peter. And it will not be tainted by any man or woman today. God is holy, 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 independent of his followers' unholiness. Praise God for his grace that he's pleased to save wretched sinners and make them trophies of grace. Verse 27, it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb, so it was, let's pause there, who is the author of life? God. Should these twins be terminated because they were through an incestuous relationship? Incestuous by marriage, mind you. No. The children are gifts of God. The children's lives were authored by God. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Birthright. Then it happened as he drew his hand back that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Then his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand. His name was called Zerah. His name is called Perez. Now, we don't have as much time as I would like, but turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 contains the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Amenadab, and Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon and Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, and Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begot Manasseh. And Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, and Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers. About the same time, they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad, and Eliad begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Methan, and Methan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so we have the first example in Perez 
of astounding, amazing grace. For Tamar begot Perez. We see also Rahab, the harlot. We see also David, who begot King Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. We see also Manasseh, all in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see is a record of amazing grace, where God and his love rescues sinners that are undeserving. The very definition of amazing grace or grace is unmerited favor. There is not a scoundrel in the Bible that merits favor. There's not a scoundrel in this room that merits favor. There's not a scoundrel that you will give birth to or your children will give birth to that merits favor. If they will be saved, it's by grace alone. And so in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, we have these individuals like Tamar and Rahab, David, Bathsheba, Manasseh, scoundrels one and all. Some of them we know more of their life history. (laughs) Praise God for His grace. Now this is not to say that we justify their sin, it's to say that God justifies sinners. It's not to say that the justified by grace alone through faith alone are to continue to sin. Not at all. They are to learn to walk in righteousness. They are to learn to observe all the Lord has commanded. And yet, tragically, many at punctuated points in their life will fail. And if they are truly saved by grace alone through faith alone, they will repent. And they will get back up. And they will continue to walk with the Lord in faith as children of God. And again, David, right in the center of that genealogy, David is the premier example, is he not? A man after God's own heart, saved by grace alone, who blew it fantastically. One day when he stayed home from war, gazed upon Bathsheba, another man's wife, not just another man, one of his mighty warrior's wives, out there fighting valiantly on the front lines, lay with her, impregnated her, invited Uriah home, got him drunk, hoping he'd go home and sleep with his wife and cover up this whole affair. Wouldn't happen because he was too righteous. I'm not going to go home to my wife while my fellow soldiers are fighting for the kingdom of God. So he slept on the front porch. So finally David gave up and put that note in his hand to send him back to the front line to give the note to the general saying, put Uriah at the front of the battle and retreat from him. So that he might die. So treacherous. So tragic. And yet David cried out unto the Lord in the Psalms, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He repented radically. A glorious psalm of repentance. And he says, If you forgive me, that he would make God's salvation known far and wide. And indeed he has and is. And we are down to this day making God's salvation known far and wide. Not a system of works righteousness, not laws whereby which you please God and thus he forgives your sin and allows you into heaven but salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness, His perfect sacrifice alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's what we see in Genesis. That's what we see from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we see in Joseph's life. That's what we see in Judah's life and Tamar's. Life and in the entire genealogy of the Lord Jesus, the entire record of God's work with mankind, the entire Bible, and throughout the history of mankind outside of the pages of Scripture. And thus we rejoice. And we sing songs like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this grand account of your mercy, this grand account of your amazing grace. May we be messengers of the same like David before us. May we sing your praises. May we proclaim your mercies. And by your continuing grace, may you sanctify us. May you wash us with the water of the word. May you protect us, Lord, from the sin that remains within that we would not wander, Lord, that we would not fall, that we would not blaspheme your name, but, Lord, rather have a life of righteousness to stand upon to your glory, to proclaim your glories. But should we fall, Lord, we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not built upon our merits, but the perfect merit of your Son to whom we owe all our love, all our sweat and toil, even the blood in our veins. We pray it in his mighty and matchless name, he who died and shed his blood for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.